Welcome back to the All About Housing podcast. We've got something slightly different for you this week and I'll hand over to you, Richard. Hello, everyone. It's Richard Cherry here from Stonebond. Welcome to another episode of our All About Housing podcast series. So today we have a special guest who Graham will introduce in a moment. But first of all, I'd just like to reflect a little bit on how 2024 has started in the world of housing. Thankfully, uh, it seems a better place than last year. 2023, I think, was the most challenging year years that we've ever had in the housing industry on all fronts. But thankfully now we're seeing some green shoots of recovery. I think certainly in the private market as mortgage rates have fallen. And I think also in the affordable housing world, we're seeing more interest from housing associations, more activity. So definitely some green shoots. And of course, this is a big year for, in politics, the election year. And it's interesting to see... Uh, that housing has written, risen, I wouldn't say to the top of the political agenda, but it's getting up there, which for those of us who are passionate about our sector, you know, it's pleasing to see. And I think that you know, we're now seeing clear, clear differences in the political parties. The Tories seem to be sticking to their, you know, it's all about the haves, not the have-nots, and really pandering to their NIMBY audience. I mean, in my view, most of whom will vote Tory anyway, but there you are. And I think the Labour approach, I think, is very refreshing. You know, a real commitment to growth, economic growth, and growth through uh, increased housing delivery. I think we start the year with optimism, and I'm sure as the year goes on, we'll see uh, generally conditions improving, and it's just a brighter place in our industry. So, uh, so very positive. Uh, anyway, let me hand over to Graham to introduce our special guest. Great, thanks, Richard. Uh, good morning, everyone. We're very delighted uh, today to uh, uh, welcome Kate Davis, who some of you may know uh, was recently Chief Executive of Notting Hill Genesis Housing Association. And uh, since her uh, retirement from there, has taken a sort of plural uh, existence, including being one of our colleagues on the Stonebourne board, where she is a non-executive. Kate, welcome. Thank you very much, both of you. Great, lovely to have you with us. I think it'd be really good to start if you tell us a little bit about yourself, your history, and uh, your involvement in the social housing uh, sector. Well, I didn't go straight from college to do a degree in housing or anything. I actually did all sorts of odd jobs and I was working in a family planning clinic in Brixton when the counsellor said to me, oh, my husband's looking for somebody uh, to run a development department, to do the admin in a development department in a housing association. I said, oh, well, as I'm on a temporary contract, I'd consider that. But what's a housing association? You know, I didn't even know. And she said, well, look it up, for heaven's sake, days before Wikipedia. But I did go home and looked it up. And I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting. It's sort of socially important work, but also sounds quite fascinating in terms of the topics like making places better, providing houses for homeless people, uh, opportunities for people moving out of care. Uh, looking after older people and all of that was quite interesting to me so I applied for that job and I got it as a part-time development administrator in a supported housing association and um, I really got quite a taste for it and carried on and growing and developing in that career as you've said for about 30 years I started when my youngest son was just a baby and he's 32 now so that, that's been my life in housing and it's been a sort of second career for me but was absolutely fantastic I've enjoyed every minute of it and it's also such fun to be doing something that's socially useful builds communities makes people's lives better gives people a chance of somewhere decent to live but also a job which is sort of inherently interesting in in that 
sort of 30 plus year period and um, we obviously see huge changes in in the nature of housing delivery um, in all forms of tenure private housing and the affordable sector it'd be really interesting to hear about you know your thoughts on how things have changed well it's really uh fascinating because in those early days when i was working for cog on which eventually became part of uh, home housing group we were funded not only 100%, we were funded at more than 100% to build houses. So all the money came from the government. And if you overspent by 5%, they gave you that as well. So it's absolutely incredible, really, that you could get the whole of that process paid for by the government. Today, the amount going in as grant is something like 10%. That's a massive difference. And the, um, the shortage of grant is made up for by the bigger housing associations doing commercial activity to make money, whether that's selling homes for outright sale, market rent, other sorts of businesses, to generate and replace that lost grant. So from the taxpayer point of view, it's a fantastic arrangement, but it isn't, in my view, the way to ensure that you have a steady supply of affordable housing for people. Because it's also happening at the same time that house prices have fundamentally changed. I mean, back in the 19. 80s when I was doing that work um, it wasn't that difficult to get a council flat or a housing association flat in London you know there was actually an oversupply particularly of the less desirable stuff and people could afford to buy a home with three times salary you could get you could get a home for that you could get a mortgage in an ordinary job as a, a teacher or something like that so everything's changed you know it's more and more difficult for people to get any kind of affordable housing option there is no social housing because it's all very, very uh, in demand. The buying on the open market is very tough for people unless they've got a couple both in quite a good job with good prospects and probably the bank of mum and dad behind them. So like everything is out of whack now and it's very, very difficult. So I think, I mean, it's nice to hear Richard's first remarks about a new government perhaps being a fresh start, but the sort of amount of money you need to really make things happen it's not as if it's sort of we're swimming in it tell us about the um the larger housing associations in terms of their setup because as you say they, they've got a bigger capital base they're able to do more sort of commercial style mm-hmm. organizations to help build their mm-hmm. build on that base to procure more housing but of course they have got large legacies of existing stock which are in in some cases in very, very dire need of support so how much have they got to do in terms of repair and uh, making those properties into a much better standard for their inhabitants. Uh, and then how much more is left, if any, for, for new development, which is obviously where we come in. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is obvious that with uh, 1,500 different housing associations, there's not one one answer for everybody. We're in different parts of the country. We've got different legacies. We've got different types of stock. We've got different investment profiles. We've got lots of different things. So, for example... Uh, a for-profit housing association looking after supported housing people with all brand new stock is in a very different position to a housing association with lots of shared ownership in in the south for example I mean it's just very different most of my experience was with a very large London-based association that had a fantastic value base I mean 22 billion pounds worth of of stock of property it's amazing really when you think about the value that is there Okay, it's declining. And I feel very strongly about that, that we haven't invested enough in the fabric. Some of those are Georgian houses. Some of them are Victorian houses. 
And if you think about modern comfort and warmth and heating bills and net zero and so on, that stock is not really ideal and it's going to be very expensive to upgrade. You add to that people's expectations about not having any damper mould, about having homes that are just modern and pleasant and have all facilities and, and the green agenda just touched on. All of this does put tremendous pressure on people like Notting Hill Genesis with a lot of older stock to decide what we're going to do with it and to invest as much as they can in bringing it up. So there's like a backlog of repairs. At one point, again, in the before the 1980s, the government paid a management and maintenance allowance to all social landlords to enable them to provide all of this on top. But of course, that's all gone. And HAs were generally seen as being, yes, you can provide new homes, but you also need to invest in your old homes. So use your proceeds for that, which is it's fine in a very positive market. You can just about do it. But over the last few years, it's got very much more difficult to meet both of those needs. And that's why a lot of HAs are backtracking on the growth and development agenda. Usually it's the government who's saying, these are our targets and you're playing a big role in meeting them. But that pressure's off. I mean, I don't, it, as you mentioned, um, Richard, at the beginning, you know, the nimbyism means nobody in government is saying, let's get these houses built. You know, it's they're really the pressure's off. So naturally, as a result of that, people are putting their profits, such as they are, more into the maintenance of the existing stock. I mean, I don't think it'll go on forever because they should be able to fix the backlog over 10 to 15 years. But I think unless there's more money put in from government, there will not be a big change for, for some, quite some time. And you mentioned just now there are over 1,400 housing associations in the country. Um, and of course, you must have overseen the merger or take mm. over the Notting Hill Genesis, mm. two very big housing mm. associations come to, coming together. Um, actually, in this week, uh, we've heard the announcement of Barrett and Redrow merging yes. uh, to bring the numbers of, of big house builders even to a smaller number. Mm. Do you foresee, with this drive for more efficiency, to, to create more uh, surplus um, to be fed into the housing association, the state, uh, more and more mergers or takeovers? It's a fascinating question. I mean, I personally think 1,500 um, housing associations is a ludicrously high number. No, I agree. You can take almost any industry and there's like between five and 12 big players. Same with the big house builders, same with the big supermarkets, same with the big banks. You know, there's a, a, a small group and then there's a few medium-sized ones. And then there's people starting out. But we have just had this huge number and even new ones are being created as we speak. So the number is very large and it's not efficient. For sure, that is not efficient. Each one has its own board. Each one has to have its own regulation. You know, if you looked at it, in the, the overheads are high in these in these businesses. So that's, the, there should be a drive. If there was competition in the market and it was a normal market decision, you would not have all of those surviving. Today, there's, there's obviously a lot of interest in the affordable housing sector from investors, private investors, some huge private investors. So we're now seeing quite a lot of for-profit registered providers um, emerging, raising money. Uh, we heard the other day from a friend that um, uh, that, 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 that out there, I think he's talking about the Western, Western world, there's £350 billion worth of cash waiting to be invested. Um, and of course, uh, I think this particular guy was describing the affordable housing world, a little bit like infrastructure. So, you know, there's a reliable stream of 
profit and return from it. So great interest um, from investors. I'm just wondering if, well, what your thoughts are about for-profit registered providers emerging? And then also, is there any opportunity for the existing charitable sector to raise money from investors in the same way that the for-profit guys are doing it so that they can grow in that way rather than rather than gearing up on their existing stock or waiting for more government cash that won't be around for a while. And just to be clear, that 350-odd billion pounds he referred to, or dollars, uh, was about investing in property that has beds in it as, as opposed to commercial or, or uh, industrial. So it was all about um, the, the residential sector in its broadest sense. Yes, and interesting you just said that about commercial is not a very good investment at the moment. So mm. those funds are thinking where else to go. Uh, they've shied away from this in the past because it was considered just too complicated having just ordinary families living in the housing. Mm. It's much more difficult with security of tenure and potentially management issues. But they seem to have got over that now. And as you say, there is interest in the for-profit sector. That's the whole point. You know, a housing association can't distribute profits or or take it out of the sector, the profits get reinvested in social benefit, which is really what the taxpayer would want. I think our first um, mixed tenure private housing-led scheme was a scheme we did in Harlow. Um, and at the time, there was no uh, a Section 106 agreement, was then a planning gain agreement, was then a Section 52 agreement. Um, and no one had ever done, no one had ever it occurred to anybody that through planning gain that you could provide subsidised affordable housing. Um, so from the from, from the land value, essentially, um, land value was put aside and spent on affordable housing. And now, of course, that's the norm, isn't it? And it's very much a part of housing, is, how housing is financed. But I think also you know, on, the, on the physical side, that... that um, that step then created a lot of mixed tenure communities, um, which was such a, a, a you know more natural way of being and living, and a much more balanced way of living in a community. I wonder if you could perhaps just give us a few of your reflections on how those things have changed. That is really fascinating, and weirdly, Harlow, which was Harlow Newtown, which had sort of different planning regs, didn't it? Because it was a, a development corporation, for want of a better word. And my husband's family were moved from the East End in poor council housing to a beautiful new estate in Harlow where he went to school and had a, a great, great time. But he tells me that most of the families moving into that council housing in Harlow were what you'd probably call middle class families now. You know, doctors, people who worked in banks, you know, people with um, a reasonable income, uh, aspirational children going to grammar school and so on. And um Really, the ghettoization of social housing isn't just the design and build of it, it's the allocations policies. As housing has got more and more in demand, it's going more and more to the people in the greatest need. So, although of course there are still well-to-do people and there's still long-standing families in social housing, it's had to take on a role of much more complicated management than it ever has before. So, what you know, those estates, when they were built, whether it was the Ellsbury estate or Graham Park, they became run down because not enough was invested, but they also became areas with social problems because they weren't managed well. And so the buildings sometimes get the blame for being the problem, but actually it's the management and the investment that's to blame for the problem. 
that intrinsically many of those estates were quite well designed and are quite beautiful. Um, however, because that's very hard to fix and regeneration is a very, very difficult area to get right, we've all got experience of that, the much more modern idea, and this was one of the founding principles of Notting Hill Genesis, was to build mixed and balanced communities. And it was my mission while I was there to do that, to deliver that mixed and balanced, to use the word balanced, so that you do not get just very poor people living together, but you get a range of people who can potentially support a range of businesses in the area, can make sure shops are doing well, make sure the cinemas and, um, and so on. Also, as much as possible, integrated into the grain of the existing communities. So there's some infrastructure there. But yeah, if we can get that right, we create very successful places and people don't get ghettoized and they don't get stigmatized because their housing's the same as everybody else's. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, certainly in terms of um, the sort of non people who are not involved in housing and the housing world, sort of lay public, and I have friends and even some people involved in our industry who have no idea of the quality of housing that's that's now provided and managed by um, the affordable housing world. And people still have, the, the sort of lay, lay people still have a sort of fear of it. You know, if somebody mentions that there's some new affordable housing about to be built or a mixed tenure estate, they get terribly nervous about, you know, what they, what they have this vision of sort of former council housing. But you know, you look at look at some of the incredible quality that goes into uh, mixed tenant housing schemes these days. Um, you know, it's it's just it's just fantastic. And then I think also the um, the work, the extra work that um, you know an organisation like Notting Hill Genesis would have done in the softer side of community creation. You know, setting up residents associations, community clubs, uh, particularly where you've got you know a sort of very broad ethnic mix, for example, and all the sort of special interests and so on. Can, can you talk a bit about, you know, how, how, how much of your time, how much, how much emphasis went into that in, in, in your time, particularly at, at Notting Hill Genesis? It, it's a really fascinating question. I can't, but um, just one story that I can tell from one particular estate. Um, we had quite a lot of pressure coming from the leaseholders, in other words, the people who bought shared ownership. They were on our back a lot about the look of the estate, the, the, gardening, the lifts being out, you know, we had a lot of pressure from them. And uh, we went down as the whole management team one day and we said, look, let's just meet people and see what we can do here. You know, this needs a, uh, a statewide response. It was something we built as a mixed and balanced community um, in Hammersmith. So actually a very good area. Um, but there was quite a lot of disquiet. So we went down there, we met people, they're very angry, they had a loads of stuff to share with us, and we sort of took it away. One of the things that we were interested in, we hadn't heard anything from the tenants, only from the leaseholders. The leaseholders were very well organised and uh, you know, very professional in their relationship with us. Anyway, one of the things that the team decided to do was uh, rebrand it, to start thinking about it, opening up some of the commercial areas which had never been let, bringing some social enterprises in there, and she really got it going in a fantastic way. But she organised a family fun day and it was to celebrate Eid, you know, the end of, of the fasting. And there was a huge number of Somali families living on that estate. And quite often the leaseholders were complaining about ball games and noise from the youth. 
Um, that day where the where the event was much more aimed towards the tenants but involved the leaseholders began to break down the actual barriers that were there between people and got a much greater appreciation of, you know, okay, some big families here and big boys, then, you know, they need something to do all day. You know, the idea of having some games and some games areas rather than just all planting. So the sort of engagement of people on the longer term, you know, I mean, Rich is right. A lot of the new bill social housing is very nice when it started, but 20, 30 years down the line, it's quite sad if it hasn't had regular investment, but also if it hasn't had regular community building. And it's hard to pay for that. That was just done out of surpluses, That the example I gave. It was kind of being run on a reasonable amount of money, but it wasn't enough to sort of put right the problems that we had. Um, but it's interesting you, you talk about how nice the new build is, but it is um, one thing that bothers me that people who, who luck out and get a new build are in a very different position than someone gets fourth hand, second hand, if you know, old property that's it's been swept out, but its kitchen units are old and its bathroom is cranky and it's not very nice. I remember going in my last few years at Countryside, going around a uh, state in North London, I, I was absolutely appalled at the condition of the housing. When you see your own country supplying this appalling housing, um, it really does get you down. And the terrible thing was then is that it's it's been just filled with immigrants. It's not a very uh, welcoming, <laughs> welcoming, welcome home for, for, for those particular people. Just one other thing is, is the, in Britain, I think there's still a bit of a stigma for the haves who'd have to live uh, with social housing in their developments. Mm. And, of course, people just don't seem to realise, I think they think they're all sort of at the bottom of the pong or being moved from a terrible council estate and there's going to be awful behavioural issues, which there can be, of course. But, I mean, a lot of these people are um, normal folk who just can't afford to buy a home. They could be teachers, nurses, even young doctors at the beginning of their careers. Yeah, I think there's all sorts of people in social housing, but you know, they some have poverty as the single problem, and some have poverty plus other problems. And I mean, I guess um, that's what makes a community is a mixture of people. I mean, we're not really into either ghettos here or gated communities here. You know, we don't. People love living in Notting Hill, for example, rich people because hey, there's, you know, some soul and some culture and some choice and we got markets and we got antiques and we got music venues and we got interesting old pub. Got it all going on and it makes it a fun place to live. No one wants to live in a completely sterile place like you have seen in the States, I think, you know, a sort of gated community. Um, it doesn't really gel with our our idea. And um, Well, one of the attractions of London is its unique diversity, isn't it? It's I, so fantastic. I tot- totally and agree. I, I have heard people say um you know what why why is it why are we providing affordable housing in very expensive parts of london it's a very costly way of housing people why not move all those people who can't afford to buy or market rents why not move them out to places where um, land and property is cheaper and it's more economic to house those people um it's not what i think at all i should add but I think one of the fantastic things about housing associations and local authorities is you're preserving for working class people and people on low incomes, you know, the right to live anywhere in London. The other, the other issue, of course, is we, we need a whole mass of workers 
from from top executives right the way through to street cleaners. Uh, and you're not going to do that if you ship ship all of the lower paid miles out of town. I was in the States uh, about four years ago and visiting San Francisco. We met a friend of ours there and he was telling us that um, with the arrival of the big tech companies, Microsoft, Apple and, and, and so on, a few years before, house prices have actually gone through the roof. There's a hell of a lot of homeless on the streets. And actually these big tech companies have had went to the city council and, and actually offered to give them billions of dollars to start building affordable housing because even they couldn't get hold of workers. So, you know, in a way, we're saying that the private sector, whether it's developers or whether it's through the tax system or whether it's through investment in pension funds, you know, some of the money for new social housing has got to come from those sources. The, the rich have to subsidise the housing of the poor and that's as, as it should be. You know, that's how you get a society that works. Uh, you get democracy. So it's uh, it's just different methods to redistribute wealth a bit. That's all we've got time for in part one of this two-part special. However, we look forward to welcoming Kate back in the next episode where we deep dive into the way housing authorities are trying to solve the current crisis and what we, as Stonewood, could do to help.